what I came to really understand is that sports is an extension of geopolitics. You know, it's Melbourne versus Sydney. It's Brisbane versus Melbourne. I mean, this is war. And this is how people identify and communities feel engaged and strong. So people really care about sports. And when you look at that on a geopolitical level, for emerging countries or countries that are wanting to show themselves as a power, that if you're strong in the Olympics, and that's you know the international competition, right? And you can go in there and you're Russia and you can dominate China or you can dominate the United States, that's the extension of warfare. It's the same thing. And so that is why it's been so important to these countries to go into international competitions like this and win. The idea of peace, harmony, unity, and we're all coming together in sport and friendship. (laughs) No, 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 we're not (laughs) coming to kick your ass. That is Oscar-winning documentary director Brian Fogel. And this is episode 291 of the Osher Ginsburg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsburg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsburg. This is my podcast. What is it? It's simply a conversation designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's all it is. Something you'll hear today will make you maybe rethink perhaps where you are, maybe where you thought you were, what you thought you had, what can indeed be possible. You'll hear something today that'll change that. That's that's a guarantee. Guarantee it. Me? Hi. Who am I? Uh, I'm Osher. Hi. I'm Australian. I work in telly. Um, I write books, I lift heavy things to make my head feel better, I ride bikes, more about that in a moment. I am, how many weeks away are we? Eight. We're eight, nine-ish eight. No, eight. weeks away eight. <laughs> from a baby. That's my wife, Audrey, who's lying next to me on a pillow awaiting her pregnancy massage. I'll, I'll hurry up and record this. Thank you. No worries. <laughs> I, I have a sacrum to put an elbow into. Uh-huh. And um, I've been making this podcast every Monday and every Friday since about 2013. And you can find that wherever you find podcasts, wherever you found this one. Thank you so much to everybody that rated and reviewed the show. If you can, it's the very best thing you can do for the show is to tell someone to listen to it and show them how to download an app and show them how to listen to the show. Um, and please subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you can to uh, hopefully help you subscribe and rate and review the show a bit more. Um, here's a few ratings and reviews from Nate the Aussie. Uh, five stars from the broad spectrum of guests to his own personal story. This podcast is worth your time. Very informative, casual in a way that makes you feel drawn in and part of the conversation. If you're looking for a new podcast to be addicted to, this is for you. Um, thanks heaps, Nate. And one from... Uh, Lisey, love Osh's podcast, especially the check-ins, just like a chat with your bestie. Oh, thanks, Lisey. Really appreciate those. Thank you so much. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, so... Let me tell you about my guest today. First up, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that I like to ride bicycles. Bikes for me are freedom machines, freedom from your physical location, freedom from a sedentary life, and for me, freedom, freedom from sometimes unhelpful thinking. But I do love to ride because it gets me just not only from place to place, it also clears my head. Maybe sometimes I can have a chat with a friend and it helps my body and my mind work well while I'm out doing all those things. I am not a competitive cyclist. Oh, no. However, right now, as we speak, the biggest competition in the world, as far as cycling is concerned, is happening right now in Australia every night on the telly. The Tour de France is upon us. And while every sport pretty much has dealt with doping, it's harder to find a sport where doping has been dealt with in a higher profile on a more world level than in cycling. Brian Fogel, my guest today, won an Oscar for his incredible documentary, Icarus, which you can watch on Netflix right now in between binging on Stranger Things season three. He was also nominated for a BAFTA for the film, and it's an extraordinary movie because Brian set out to make a film about what happens when an incredibly fast, incredibly fit amateur cyclist, him, when he competes in the hardest non-professional race in the world, he does it clean, and then he says, well, you know, what would happen if I did it while I was on the gear, like all the pros were doing at the time? What happens next is something that ended up blowing the lid off a systemic international doping system, which had implications so, so far reaching that in no small part, it played a role in the entire Russian national team being banned from participating in the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea. Yeah. This is a conversation that is m more than just about cycling, more than just about doping and international espionage. This is also a conversation about holding fast to your truth and what happens when you powerfully tell a story in an authentic way. And if you've ever wondered what it's like to be in a situation where you saw massive success and then things weren't working so much, you had to rent out your place on Airbnb to make the mortgage... And then just a few short years later, winning an Oscar? Well, you're about to find out what that's like. Brian and I caught up over Skype from his place in Los Angeles, and I'm so grateful that he took the time to do so. I promise you, this conversation will inspire you, even if you hadn't ridden a bike since you were kids. 
I hope you get as much out of this chat as I did. If you like what you hear, you can uh, let Brian know. He's on Twitter and Instagram, Brian Fogel, B-R-Y-A-N-F-O-G-E-L. Enjoy this conversation with Brian Fogel. I'm, I'm so grateful I get to talk to you today. There's a lot of people that uh, will listen to this that might not have seen Icarus yet, but there's definitely a lot of people that would have definitely seen the results of what Icarus both has done and definitely what it is about. So I hope you don't mind if we cover a bit of exposition as to about how the film is and basically the work that it is and the kind of work that you do. And indeed, what's real important for me is uh, uh, one of the things I'd like to discuss is you know, being on this extraordinary path and then seeing such incredible signals to change direction and then that being, you know, ultimately the thing that wins you a freaking Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> so um, where did riding bicycles start for you, Brian? That started um, really, uh, uh, I grew up in Denver and I had um, uh, pretty bad uh, asthma as a kid. I guess I technically still do, but I've been taking this uh, drug called Advair for about 20 years that now I believe that I don't have asthma, even though if I don't take this drug for a year, I, for a day, I realize that I do. But um, but I was, uh, I, I was struggling with asthma and I was ski racing in the winters and all the guys who were uh, ski racing were into cycling. And this was right about the time of uh, 1986, and Greg LeMond had just won the tour, and it was getting news in the U.S. And I was like, oh, that looks kind of cool. And um, my parents wouldn't get me a bike, but I wanted to ride bikes. And the doctor was like, oh, he's wasting his time riding a bike. You know, he's, he's got asthma. And I was like, well, screw that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get a bike. And so I started up a little car uh, detailing business. Uh, out of my parents' driveway, I was uh, 13 years old, and I spent the whole summer going door to door to door, basically trying to convince neighbors to drop their car off in in my uh, parents' driveway in the morning. And I would wash their cars, you know, in the summer, and they could pick it up, you know, in the in the evening. And um, I got a good little racket going. And um, a couple months later. I had saved up like 600 bucks, and I bought this Trek 560. It was purple sparkles with yellow track decals with yellow handlebar tape as purple as purple could get and i got my first bike and uh i uh, i basically shut down the car detailing business at that point because <laughs> i got the bike and uh, and off i went and so i uh so it's been like uh this uh, a constant thing in my life throughout going on, I don't know, 30 years. Yeah, but it got pretty serious for you. But I'm guessing, you know, cycling was always a part of your week, uh, whether it be a group ride on the weekend or a ride in the day. You're obviously quite committed to it. But it, it got to a point where you wanted to start challenging yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, actually, um, I, I had stopped racing um, when I was about 20. I was in this uh, pretty brutal crash. I was up in Canada. It was pouring rain. I was actually in the breakaway. I was probably going to have the greatest result I'd ever had. I was. I thought I might even win it. There was like five, six of us left, and uh, I ate a wheel, and I knocked out. Uh, I ended up getting eight root canals. This tooth totally gone. It was brutal, and um, that accident really kind of set me back and made me go, hmm, maybe I don't really want to race bikes. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any future career in this, and. Um, so I kind of stopped racing, but continued riding, you know, just as a hobby. 
And then 2013 came along and Lance confessed. And I was still really just riding, but not racing. I, I stopped racing, you know, I mean, uh, uh, for, I think I can't remember what year I stopped racing. I stopped racing in 1991 or something, but he had, he had confessed to doping. And, and of course, anybody who enjoys the sport was always kind of going, okay, well, what does this do? What does it not do? What's the big deal? And for a guy like me, who's ridden his whole life, I was always curious with the idea of what my potential might have been, or had I doped, could have I maybe have been a pro? What what would have it done for me? And and it seems so undefined, other than this broad term, blanket term of a doper, you know. And I'm going, okay, what does that really do? And so I, I got kind of, I guess, curious and obsessed with a the the notion of what do these drugs do? And I was and I was riding a lot just recreationally, um, but I had this you know feeling like maybe I could beat my Strava times, you know, maybe I could what what was my potential? And at the same time, what what seemed very very clear to me was that the anti doping system in sport, not cycling, but all of sport, um, clearly didn't work and was, in my opinion, a fraud because if the most tested athlete on the planet could get through 500 tests clean. And to this day, you know, Armstrong has never actually failed the test. So if the most tested athlete on the planet can get through 500 tests clean, what does this mean for every sport for, you know, forget about cycling. And so it, it became I, I, this kind of idea for me of what are actually my limits? How fast can I be? And does this anti-doping system, which is doing a really good job of publicly outing and shaming people, but yet they don't seem to have any answers out as to how to actually catch people other than to get their teammates to rat, rat them out in exchange for their own immunity, which is what happened in the case of Lance. So you were quite curious, obviously, that there was a time in your life when racing was quite a thing before your accident, but you're wondering, like, well, what if I was on the gear? What could I have been? Would I, you know, would I have won more breakaways? Would I have got attention of bigger teams? Would I have gone to Europe? All that kind of stuff. It must have made made you think, and it certainly I would make young athletes think. I'm sure that there's a point when you're 18, 19, 20, and you're like, well, I can only be doing this for so long before I'm going to have to start thinking about what else I'm going to do with my career. But if I get on some stuff that can help me get better times or get better results, this right. might be become my profession. I, I think as certainly a, a curiosity, and I think it opens a door to that kind of discussion, which is, okay, well, if you don't do it, then you're being left out, and if you're not going to be caught, then why not? And and so that was, you know, for for originally as I started on, you know, making Icarus, um, my idea was really twofold was a to show an audience what these drugs do, what they don't do, how fast can you get, how, how much do they improve your performance? Is, is it snake oil? Is it all that it's cracked out to be? And two, does the global anti-doping systems in sport work? Um, and if it doesn't, okay, what, what do we do or not do about it? But hypothetically what Armstrong did, could that still be gotten away with? Yeah, we're, I mean, we're a sport-obsessed nation, Brian, as I'm sure, you know, you saw when you were here. And it's not just cycling, you know, there's, I'm sure, at every level of every sport in my country, for sure, there are people who are 
this has to be. Yeah, sure. And, and look, and I and as I kind of really came to discover, you know, through, you know, really a year and a half of just self-trial and everything is, you know, it makes a big difference in recovery. But you know, I, I don't think had I been taking all that stuff and I was 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old, I was ever going to be of a world-class caliber. I think you have to I think you have to be a world-class caliber athlete. You're already a genetic mutant. And then that stuff gives you that that extra little bit because, you know, most of these cases you're competing over seconds, hundreds of seconds, or that, you know, that little extra bump in, in VO2. So, I mean, what I, what I discovered was, yeah, it was great for recovery. It certainly helped how I felt day after day, but it's not like all of a sudden – I went from Brian, whatever you want to call it, very good recreational cyclist to Brian, world-class athlete. It's not not the case at all. And it really, it really is hundreds of a second. It does break my heart when you're watching the spring classic races are just starting now um, when we're recording this. And it breaks my heart that after, I don't know, like 160 kilometers of ball-destroying cobblestones, you can lose by a wheel width. You know, and that, but that's what it really comes down to. It comes down to like two and a half centimeters of space over two cyclists traveling at 60 kilometers an hour. It's just yeah, it's bananas. But what you're talking about is like that two and a half centimeters is what can be gained. You know, you're not coming from the back of the pack to the front. That or, you know, or, well, you know, you're, you're gaining, uh, you know, uh, oxygen carrying capabilities. So, yeah. uh, day in and day out, you know, if your body's, you know, making more red blood cells, you're able to recover better. You're able to transport oxygen better. When you, when it came to wanting to create the film, you obviously, you know, you work in the entertainment industry. You'd, you'd taken something you'd written, you'd made it into a feature. You know how it works, but you still got to put food in the fridge. You still got to get paid. When you were doing the early stages of the film, was it I'm going to make a film about this, or you just started filming yourself doing it, or had you already pitched it? Had you had funding to start it? No, it, you know, I, I had went through. Um, you know this, you know, the, in the entertainment business, until you reach a certain point, it's just filled with ups and downs and ups and downs and, you know, and, and it's feast or famine. And I had, um, in the years prior, um, I had created this play. The play went to New York and played for three years in a 300-seat theater off Broadway. It had had touring productions of it. I had done a book. And then I had held on to direct um, a film adaptation that I had written of, you know, basically adapting the play into film. And that experience turned into something very, very stressful for me. Uh, I didn't have enough money to, to make it. I had a 26-day shoot that got turned into a 19-day shoot oh, after a week of shooting because the producer didn't want to pony up the money to make the film union. That's a whole other story. And I came out of this film that I thought was going to be kind of my break that was going to get me work and was going to set me on a new trajectory in life. And I came out of this essentially broke with no career. I, I viewed myself that I was in director's jail, the mythical jail of, you know, you make a movie and it's not a success and then you're never going to make another one. And so uh, I was in this literally you know, turning 40 and going, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? I'm, I'm literally 40. I'm basically broke. My, I had a career all through my thirties. I had a play. I was acting, I was producing, I had traveling shows. I did a movie. 
you know, I, I had done just fine. And all of a sudden I'm going 10 years later, I'm going, I'm screwed. And so the start of this film for me at the time was as much about, okay, do or die, make or break. Can I get myself back on the map? And when I started, I was able to raise after about a year, 350,000 bucks to basically just get me going. And I had budgeted out that that 350,000 would basically take me through the first year. And at the end of the first year, I'd be able to create like a, a piece from it. Hopefully it was on track. It was going well. And I'd use that short, that 25 minute sizzle, as I called it to go out and raise more money. And, um, and that's ultimately what happened. But the year before I started on Icarus, I was in probably the, you know, one of the lowest depressed places in my life of trying to figure out how I was going to, you know, reinvent myself. And for the first, you know, couple years of, of Icarus, I was paying myself a little bit, but it wasn't really enough to get by. So I was, it was like, okay, I'm, my entire job was making this film. And I was able to just take enough from it to continue to pay my bills for that time. How far along uh, in that first year, or how, how far along in it were you? I mean, for people who haven't seen the film, I won't spoil the ending, but basically Brian, uh, he signs up to the, basically the, the world's hardest amateur cycling race. It's as hard as you can get before you go pro. And he competes in it and then goes, well, this is as well as I got. How would I go if I was on all this gear? And started to track down the people that could help him. And one of those people you found was um, Gregory Uchenkov, who is now in witness protection, but we'll get to that. How far into the process did you find this guy and how could you actually quite believe it the, the first time you, you spoke to him? I actually found him really early on in the um – and the film is a narrative device. I bring him in basically right after I had done the race clean for the first year and was getting ready to dope. Um, but I had actually started to talk to him before I even got my fundraising in place. And it was actually during those Sochi Olympics that we started emailing. And so that was like February 2014. And I had reached out not with the notion initially that of would you help me dope and teach me what to do and help me test my samples and get away with it. I had reached out to him with the notion of, you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I had already directed the movie and the movie that I had directed, uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt starred in it. And he loved Jennifer Love Hewitt. So he's like, Oh, you directed a movie with Jennifer Love Hewitt. This is great. So, so he was literally, uh, you know, at the time basically, uh, excited to talk to me because I had directed a movie with Jennifer Love Hewitt. And, uh, and so I had, I had reached out with the idea that, you know, hey, I'm a documentary filmmaker, I'm a cyclist, I'm an athlete, and I'm curious of whether or not the, the anti-doping system in sport uh, works and whether or not what, what Lance Armstrong did, if you could still get away with it. And he engaged with me in, in emails as I go back and look at those emails. They're being sent about four o'clock Russian time. So he was like, I guess smuggling urine, uh, you know, dumping out clean samples for dirty samples in, in the shadow laboratory at the Sochi Olympics while he was emailing me. And uh, he invites me to go meet him in Oregon. And this is now in July of 2014. I'd got um, my first uh, bit of money to get started on it. 
and I go to meet him not knowing whether or not he's going to be my doping guru doctor, but hoping that maybe this guy would. And we bond over a couple days. And long story short, he agrees to help me dope, agrees that he'll help me bring my samples in through his laboratory to test them and develop a protocol for me, which obviously is pretty shocking coming from the same guy who had just conducted all of the testing for the Sochi Olympic Games and was also conducting all the testing for all of Russia's athletes. So I was like, wow, jackpot. I think I got a movie. This, this <laughs> is, you know, forget about anything else. I mean, this is wild. Yeah. And so, uh, so off I went. Aside from the fact that, oh, my God, here we go, I'm making this movie. This is what better character could I possibly get? When you met face-to-face this man who was so clearly involved, Gregory Ruchenkov, like, part of you must have been going, oh, my goodness, I couldn't have ever wished for a greater character as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. This couldn't be any better. But at the same time, did you go, oh, my goodness, everything I've ever seen on the Olympics is is a fraud? <laughs> My, did your heart break a little? Well, I, at the time, I didn't know that exactly. I mean, it, that would come, and then that understanding and information uh, would build over time. But certainly, there was reason to immediately suspect that, hey, things were not perhaps as as they seem. But I think, you know, having witnessed everything, even from the Lance era or everything, I mean, I was starting out on this journey of what I wanted this film to be based on my own notion that clearly this system was very, very flawed, having no idea exactly uh, what a fraud it was. Mate, it, it, and then the way, you, the way you describe, the way you tell the story in the film, the, the secret doorways, the shoots, the, the secret freezes, the codes, everything, it, it's such a system that obviously has been developed over years and years and years and years. And as you mentioned earlier, if one team's doing it, come on. You know, it's fallacy to think that they're the only people doing it. Well, that was Russia's mentality through all their decades of a state-sponsored system which they still deny uh even though i mean it's like you know it's like looking at uh there's there's whatever there's a hundred bodies with bullets in the head and there's the gun and there's the bullets and they all match up to whatever russia and then they're still sitting there like no it wasn't us but that's okay i mean we've seen you know this in multiple incarnations throughout history but regardless of denials um this was a state-sponsored program and they had done this over decades, but I think the mentality also was, well, everybody else is doing it. Or if we don't do that, somebody else will. So there was always that kind of uh, culpable deniability in the sense that you would go, okay, well, if we can get away with it, well, clearly somebody else is going to get away with it, so we might as well do it. And uh, I think that that's what you know, kind of drives the notion of the majority of tr- cheating and all sorts of things, which is there's a loophole, let's exploit it. When it comes to why a state would want to do this, be it Russia or the former East Germany or, you know, China, why do you think it's so, so important for a state, particularly of that, I guess, kind of heavy, you know, strongman kind of leader? Why do you think it's important for them to have sporting success? Well, I think, you know, what, what I came to really understand and um, uh, is that sports is an extension of, of geopolitics. So, you know, George Orwell said that sport 
and what happens on the playing fields of sport is essentially war without weapons. And, you know, and the same thing holds true here in the United States with our football teams, our basketball teams, the same things in Australia with, you know, Australian league football and, you know, and cricket and rugby. I mean, it's Melbourne versus Sydney. It's Brisbane versus Melbourne. I mean, this is, this is war and this is how people identify and communities feel engaged and strong. I mean, I, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and Denver is all about the Denver Broncos, our football team. And if the Broncos win, people are happy. And if they lose, the incident of violent crime, rape, murder, everything goes up. I mean, it's literally been charted. And the same thing is, goes in Australia. When, when the New England Patriots win the Super Bowl, it's a national, it's a state holiday the next day. And literally like six or 10 or 12 million, I don't know, you can go read the statistics. Basically like 85% of all the people in New England stand on the street and cheer on the football team. I mean, it's, it's insane. So people really care about sports. And when you look at that on a geopolitical level for emerging countries or countries that are wanting to show themselves as a power, right, that if you're strong in the Olympics, and that's, you know, the, the international competition, right? And you can go in there, and you're Russia, and you can dominate China, or you can dominate the United States. That's the extension of nuclear weapons. That's the extension of warfare. It's the, it's the same thing. And so that is why it's been so important to these countries to go into international competitions like this and win. And we see this in, in so many lesser incarnations. But in these countries, you know, you look at those Beijing Olympic Games, 2008. I mean, the world had never seen an Olympic Games carried off to such precision. We had never seen an opening ceremonies like this, closing ceremonies. Well, this was China's coming out party to planet Earth. This was China in 2008 going, we're a first world country, we're a nuclear power, we're a global economic powerhouse. Look what we can do, world, because the entire world is watching the Olympic Games. And of course, they also swept the medal count. They won 166 medals that year. And Gregory, at least according to him, who was there, got the idea for swapping the urine from the Chinese at the Beijing Olympics. Now, they still haven't been caught, but all the reanalysis of those 2008 Beijing samples, none of them are testing positive, and everybody else is testing positive and getting caught. So here was China's coming out party to the world, and it wasn't enough to just host the games to show the world, you know, the what they could manufacture and create and pull off to such precision. They also needed to win. Yeah. And that was the case for Russia and Sochi. And that's been the case, I'm sure, for for many other countries in Olympic Games. That it, The idea of peace, harmony, muni- uh, unity, and we're all coming together in sport and friendship. It's basically... No, 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 we're not. <laughs> Coming no. to kick your ass. Yeah, yeah, and there's those, I guess, you know, two really famous games come to mind. There was that Russia versus uh, Hungary water polo match in the 56 or something right after Russia had, had come in to Hungary, and there were, the water was pink, apparently. There was that much blood going on from the dirty play between the players. And, of course, then there's the other one, that classic uh, US versus Russia, Lake Placid, 1980, 
the miracle on ice. I mean, Kurt Russell was in the movie. You know, there was this moment where that's where USA, USA came from. You know, that, that moment at, at Lake Placid on the ice hockey uh, rink there. So you're absolutely right. You know, nations, and certainly growing up in Brisbane, Denver wasn't the only one with the Broncos, Brian. Brisbane had some Broncos too. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> growing up like that, it absolutely, I certainly know, know what you're saying. When it comes to just general people, though, we're talking about doping at a massive level for geopolitics. I'm vaguely on Facebook here and there. And one of the things I'm involved in in Facebook is a, um, and I just, I just watch it. It's like a, a vegan fitness thing. And people in a vegan fitness group on Facebook are asking about steroids. All right. When it comes to. <laughs> well, I yeah. mean, steroids are vegan, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> but when it when it comes, we're talking about doping at like the super elite level. You know, if I was to go down to my local gym, how many people do you think there in the squat rack would be on the gear? I don't know. You know, the the, the word doping, and that's part of the whole stereotype, has such this wide definition. You know, it's like documentary. Well, documentary can be anything from a guy making a a five-minute piece on his cat to a 10-part multi-multi-million-dollar series to what I did with Icarus, and I liken it to a feature thrill film like The Born Identity. I don't think of it as a documentary. I think of it as a film. I think of it as a piece of cinema. So the same thing is like doping and so many other words. It just encompasses what is doping. Well, doping can be you took too many aspirin to thin your blood. You took beyond the legal limit of ibuprofen. I mean, you're, you know, or you're injecting like, you know, decamethadone or decadon and I don't know, you know, into your system or you're strung out on oxy. I mean, all of these things are under the definition of doping. So I don't, I don't know, but I do believe that the uh, human fundamental competitive belief of, of doing anything you can to try to, to gain a competitive edge to win, especially if you're competitive in something and you're, and you're training for something will always be there. So, I mean, look, um, you know, look at, look at like CrossFit. These guys, apparently half these guys are, you know, they're all injured. They're all jacked up. I mean, nobody's regulating any of this and what are they winning? There's no money. There's nothing at stake other than bragging rights, but bragging rights, you know, I guess is, is, is enough. Um, so I have no idea how many, but uh, <laughs> clearly the idea of a better performance um, or pushing the body to the limits in any way possible, that's not going anywhere. Yeah, I've, uh, I've been out for rides in, in Los Angeles near where you are there in Malibu, um, Los Virginis Canyon particularly, which is at some points gets to 15%. Like it's, and it's long. You too. mean Las Flores? Las Flores, that's the one. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. And I've, yeah, I've, is, a, is a tough one. I live right near there. Right. So I've been I've been going up there, just grinding away, just like, oh my god, this is tough. And then getting to the top and you know finding the people that are waiting for me. And then later on, when we're sitting around having a having a drink at Rockstar or whatever, one of them just says, "Oh yeah, well in the front bottle, I've got two cans of Red Bull, and I have you know about two hundred milligrams of ibuprofen every hour." I'm like, well, come on, man, <laughs> you know. Well, of course you beat me up and is that you know so even even like on a chill saturday ride with mates i'm like oh come on man of course i feel like shit now because you'll beat me you'll have to wait for me <laughs> look i mean there's you know that's that was the advent of you know strava the the app 
we're now with e-bikes. I mean, who the hell knows? But you know, it was is that you're competing against you know not just yourself. You're competing against everybody who is also riding, and then you're and then you're you know uh, uh, comparing your times. I mean, there's this guy who uh, I don't know if you know who Phil Guyman is. I've heard the name. He's like the king of the mountain guy. Right. He was a, he was a pro cyclist. Oh yeah. He was never good enough to actually keep a pro contract. Like he was a bad pro cyclist, like just great climber fast, but he'd get on the bike and crash and just every single time he had a race, he would just crash. And you know, this guy just couldn't really uh, sustain a, a pro career, but somehow over the last few years, he seems to have made it his entire uh, life to go out and get every single one of these Strava KOMs. I mean, who does this? Why? Yeah. But apparently he takes the bikes and, and he strips off the water bottle cages. He cuts the handlebars down. He literally will go to like one gear. He'll nothing else. He'll be in a skin suit. You know, he'll take every single bolt off the bike that you don't need to go get these KOMs on Strava. <laughs> so just for people who who don't know what we're talking about kom is an acronym for king of the mountain or qom queen of the mountain uh basically uh strava is an app where it logs like your gps on your car it logs where you've ridden your bicycle and it puts it to the gps thing on your bike or your phone to time you from the bottom to the top and there's community bounded this is the summit and this is the where the ascent begins and you can rank yourself against anyone else that's ever ridden on there which is the i guess the exciting thing about cycling is that we as general punters can go out and ride the same roads that the pros ride and ride these same hills with everybody else i can't run onto wembley and kick a football i can't run on to you know wrigley field and throw a baseball but i can ride the same hill um if i was to go to france i could ride the same hill that you know um contador rides if i wanted to right so you can you know compare your time Can, yes. to these guys to basically every cyclist and every runner people who are passionate are on this app yeah like you know a whole planet on facebook <laughs> or instagram yeah it's it's it is it is kind of interesting i certainly wouldn't want to that's not what cycling is for me i just i really honestly brian i go for the chat i go for the chat and how it makes my head feel afterwards <laughs> yeah I just, I just like the endorphin rush and yeah you know and the chat Speaking of the endorphin rush, I've got to ask you, man. There's, and you show it in the in the film Icarus, which just is super, super freaking creepy. How your Skype calls to and from Russia were being monitored, and they're airing on Russian news footage of you having a Skype conversation with Gregory. How was the stress level for you? When did you ever feel that you were in danger? I mean, Gregory's now in witness protection because of the film. I, I don't want to spoil the ending for anyone, but. You know, how did it feel to you when you realized, oh my goodness, I'm playing with some guys who do not fuck around? You know, uh, we were dealing with that reality for a while. And I think, um, you know, a lot of times, or maybe it's just me, but, you know, you, you just get so far into something and you're just kind of like, all right, well, I'm just in it. <laughs> and, and that was kind of the case of this. Like it was in something. It was so crazy. The story was so much bigger than me. It was so beyond um, myself. I, I had a, a friendship, an allegiance to Gregory, and um, and a true desire and commitment to bring the story forward. That I, I guess you know I wasn't thinking on a daily basis or, or really focusing on anything that 
would, um, I don't know, infringe on my desire to do that in the sense of, of safety. But it is certainly surreal when you understand the intelligence and surveillance capabilities of governments, of countries that are able to do these kind of things where, you know, you read about it and you see it in movies, but then when you see it happen and I'm going, wait, how did they get all those photos? Why are those photos on Russian television? How do they have those Skype calls that we made recorded? How, like, I mean, and you go, wow, this, this is, this is real. This is real. I mean, we, we saw this, you know, just recently, you know, with the, uh, with the murder of, uh, of, uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And all of a sudden, you know, a few days later, it's emerging that the murder was recorded and that the Saudi consul was under his surveillance. And they, yeah, I mean, and you're going, whoa, this is, this is real. This is, there, these capabilities are there and they are being used and whether or not it actually comes public is another thing. But I, I think it's safe to assume that if you're a person of any interest um, or if the government wants to spy on you or record uh, you or do whatever it is, look at what just happened with Jeff Bezos. You know, there's, you know, the, the capabilities are out there and they're, and they're very easy to exploit, I guess, if you're a country with the resources to do that. Now, did it make you think twice about going to certain countries or did you ever get worried when you were traveling? What, do you call someone and go, hey, by the way, the Russian government's hacking me and uh, <laughs> I'm a bit worried. Do you have to call someone? Um, I love Russia. I, uh, needless to say, I, I, I don't have any plans to return there anytime <laughs> in the near future. Um, even though, you know, I, I think it's, it's a great place. Moscow is an amazing city. So is St. Petersburg and the people are awesome, but you know, I don't think I'd really want to play with that kind of fire. But on the other hand, I'm not going to stop living my life. I mean, you know, if anybody wants to get you, I guess they're going to get you. And that's just what it is. So I try not to, to focus too much about that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How do you deal with not just the, you know, because not everyone's going to be making a, a documentary film. Um, you know, obviously you're making a new film right now. Probably you're leveling up on whatever it is you just did. How do you deal day to day with the stresses that do come with making films that have such an extraordinary impact and are whistleblowing in, in such a massive way? What do you do to keep your, you your know, head, head together? Well, I, you know, you just you just focus on what you do. And when you, if, if you're focused in on what you're doing, 
then you're able to drown out other noise. I mean, I find that same thing for myself as when I go out on a bike ride, you know, if you're, you know, you're focused on the road ahead, you're focused on that moment ahead rather than thinking a hundred steps ahead. And so, you know, I find that that's very useful for me in work. I mean, I have new projects that I'm, that I'm on right now and, and it's the same thing. I can, I can imagine or visualize what I hope that outcome to, can be. But right now, I'm only just thinking about what is today, what is tomorrow, what is a week from now, and how to execute those things to, to the best of my ability. You bite it off into small little chunks. Yeah. If you, yeah. If, you, if you start thinking about it, which I do all the time, you know, you're going, oh, my God, I have to build the whole house. That doesn't work. You just have to go, okay, where do I, where do I start? Okay, I'll, you know, I'll plant a little grass <laughs> and, and day by day, you're, the map kind of presents itself. And that's kind of how, how I think of things and how this film played out. I mean, it was over three and a half years. And then there was another year of marketing um, that took me full time after that. And then, you know, the story is still actually continuing to unfold so you do what you what you do and i try not to just focus too much on worrying about things that i can't control i uh that's a superpower that i wish i had brian (laughs) i'm trying to get myself back to uh what's right in front of me is uh that's the constant thing in my meditation honestly it's like where's my breath where's my breath oh there it is (laughs) my head and see i need to uh meditate I, i think cycling or that kind of exercises my meditation because I find myself that I can't actually just sit still and go do a whatever that is a 30 40 minute meditation and I know so many people do that and I and I know that it's supposed to be incredible I'd probably be a much better person for it it's just I don't have I don't know what happens like I, yeah. I need to do it one of these days one of these days where were you when you found out about the Oscar nomination well the the Oscars announce every every year at the same time, and they and they do the Oscar announcements for whatever reason at like five o'clock in the morning Pacific time, because that's eight o'clock East Coast time, and they want the news to pick up for the like East Coast feed and the London feed, and so they've planned it that whatever if they do five o'clock Pacific, that it can be picked up in Europe on the same day on the East Coast. And so I knew that they were coming out at like five o'clock in the morning and I set my alarm for like four fifty. I was like in bed and you know, you could watch it online. And it was like five oh two and uh yeah, I was just and, and I was just basically half asleep. <laughs> and they and they read that we were nominated. And then I was like and then my plan was to go back to sleep, but um I ended up, I couldn't then go back to sleep because my phone just started blowing up. And, you know, I was like, okay, I guess I'm waking up now. But that's how I found out. <laughs> that's extraordinary. What's the actual, what's the night like? Uh, the evening of, of going to the Oscars and stuff? I don't know. You know, well, for me, I, I was really just, uh, I was really stressed out going in because, you know, I felt like there was such tremendous pressure on me to that I really wanted to win. There was just um, Netflix had put so much into the marketing and and what we had been through for you know what felt like forever and screenings and just everything that goes into that Oscar campaign and and also you know I just 
you know, was really hoping we were going to win um, for Gregory, for the story, for the, you know, for the, you know, the international importance that I felt of what is contained in that story. So I was kind of like there and like having fun, but wasn't having fun. And luckily they, they called Icarus like as like one of the, uh, the, the doc category, one of the first awards, I think it was like number four or something. So it was out of the way in like the first 30 minutes. So then it was great. Then, then the rest of the night was great. It's always tough when you see the documentary winner get up there and make a speech because they're stoked, but obviously in their heart, they've dedicated years of their life to this thing that's clearly very a very important story that needs to be told. How do you even balance? Like, yeah, there, there's your moment. The world is watching. You want to be excited, but there's someone in witness protection. Someone's died under suspicious circumstances. It's a really heavy, heavy moment to try and try to balance that out when you get on the mic. Uh- and that's what happened, you know, and, and my speech was very much about that. And then when I went backstage, it was very much about that. And and the vast majority of the press and interviews that I've given, you know, before, during and after um, has been about that's funny. As as I'm speaking to you, I'm getting a uh, a Facebook message from a friend of mine. I haven't opened it. It's some podcast. It's the Daily, the New York Times uh, Daily podcast, I guess today's podcast. And he sends me with a message I haven't listened yet. This story is a bit scary. I hope Putin doesn't have any anger left over from Icarus. Dot, dot, dot. I'm like going, oh, okay. Thanks, Scott. And Have a great day. <laughs> I get these things all the time. It's just constant. Like, hey, did you read this story? Yeah. I'm like going, thanks. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. But, you know, the story is always like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, man falls to death in Washington hotel room. You know, ruled a suicide and, you know, yeah. people think it was Putin. I'm like, going, okay, thanks, guys. Thanks for sending me that. I don't really know what to do about it. <sighs> like this message, like, okay, how has this helped anything? <laughs> <laughs> so let's try Let's try and focus on some positive for you then, Brian. Let's, let's get out. Let's get through this. So what's, what's fascinating to me is there's people going to be listening. He'll never make a movie more than 15 seconds long in their Instagram story. Right. So, uh, but I think what they can learn from you is, um, here's this thing that you thought was going to be your career. You're going to be, you're this playwright and then you're a successful theater producer and then you're, you know, successfully get a film funded and then boom, and then you reinvented and you created something new. What would you say to people who are in that moment before the reinvention? What would, what would you wish someone could have told you at that moment? Well, I think I think it's interesting because I have a a very close friend of mine who's been very very successful, and he's going through a spell. He had him, he had his, he lost his business about six months ago. He found out that he was being embezzled from, you know, young, good looking, super smart guy, and he's, you know, uh, been going through a really 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 dark spell. And I think the the thing to to Keep in mind, which I try to remind myself when I that when you're really really high and you're on your your ups, know that that doesn't necessarily last. And so the highest moments of my life, when I felt like everything was going to be fine or I felt like I was you know set, you know I found it that those are are just that they're just moments. And so like okay, I won the Academy Award and that's incredible and it's a life changing experience. But the same day, but the next day you got to wake up and you're still, and you're still Brian with all your angst, all your anxieties, all your concerns. 
and a month from now or two months from now. So you have to keep moving forward until basically you don't anymore. And so, I, so I've learned that also the extent of that is, is that in the lowest moments or the change is that you can always stop what you're doing and reinvent yourself or go on an, uh, a new path. So the idea that, you know, four years ago when I started on this thing, I was, I had come from a lot of success and then I went through two years of just going, what am I doing with my life? Going through all my savings. I was literally renting out my, my apartment as an Airbnb just to pay the bills. And here I was, and I was 40 years old at the time. And four years later, I won an Academy Award. So I think it's, you know, you, you, anything's possible if you always believe that there's a tomorrow and there's a next week and there's a next month and there's a next year rather than focusing and dwelling on the moment. And it's the moment when you focus and dwell on that, that can get you really, really down. And so like even my friend who's going through this right now, I just say to him, look, yeah, everybody feels like this. Even the most successful people feel like this. You have to just take yourself out of that for a moment and think that, hey, there's tomorrow, there's the next day, there's the next week, and whatever that is, in a month from now, somebody's going to knock on your door or you're going to go create that opportunity for yourself and how you're feeling right now today likely won't be how you're feeling, you know, in a month from now or a year from now. So I try to kind of keep those things in mind and even knowing that like this success that I've just had, well, that's a year in the past. And now it's about, okay, how do I just keep moving forward and do things that I like to do? And hopefully they'll be successful too. You mentioned uh, creating something in the middle there. I think that's it. That's a very important factor in that, in that, down cycle certainly in the business that that i'm in and the business that you're in on a much much higher level is that moment in those fallow years is to constantly try to keep creating even though it might not be bringing the money in yeah so you have to do i mean i've i find that like i like i have i don't know three things i'm working on right now that are projects in different stages i'm shooting on two things another thing's gonna start but i'm always like looking at things and going okay Maybe that's however long it, long off it is. But as long as you have that something that you're shooting for, something that you're going for, I think it's um, it's a lot more palpable to kind of keep going if you enjoy that journey of, of getting there. And I also know that even if in two years from now my new project or something has all the accolades that I hope it to be, and maybe all of a sudden I find myself at the Oscars again, well, no matter – what happens? I still got to wake up the next day and it's going to be the next thing and the next thing over again. So I try to really focus on all the things in the moment and just trying to keep myself grounded on a daily basis. Otherwise, I'll lose my mind. I think what's really fascinating as well, and just to talk total business, and I work in terrestrial broadcast, all right? That's, that's, the, that's my bread and butter right now. And you won an Oscar for the first feature-length film on Netflix. We've all seen how many Emmys Netflix is winning. They're in, what, 200 and something million homes around the world. They're an extraordinary force of, I guess, broadcasting. Yeah. What do you see will be the Netflix effect? What do you think it'll be? Well, I think you're, you're already seeing it, which is, I mean, I tuned in the other night and I watched a new film with Ben Affleck, Oscar Isaac, directed by J.C. Chandor, who, you know, who did, um, you know, All Is Lost and did Boiler Room and did, um, what's that movie that I really liked, uh, New York. 
that film in New York with Oscar Isaac. Anyway, but you know, so I, so here I am turning on Netflix, and there's the new Ben Affleck movie, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. So what we're seeing, and I don't think this is going to stop between Netflix, between Amazon, now Warner Brothers is entering it, Disney is entering it. Is you know this last weekend I was sitting with my girlfriend going, hey, let's go see a movie. And we went to go see what's playing, and there's nothing playing other than four or five $200 million like kids' movies, Marvel movies, Captain Marvel. I'm going, I don't I really, that's not most, those films are not my cup of tea. I don't want to go see How to Train Your Dragon um, or the Lego movie, too. But that is ultimately what is playing in theaters. And everything else is now. Like this Ben Affleck movie that I saw on Netflix last night, Frontier, what is it, Triple Triple Frontier or something like that. Um, you're going, well, three years ago, two years ago, that 100% was going to be in a movie theater. And the reason why it's not is because Netflix was able to pay the budget that the filmmakers wanted, which was, I don't know what the budget on that was, $60 million. They were guaranteed their salaries, which now in most movies you know even a big star it's hard to get a film that's not some big studio film made for over 20 25 million even if you're a big star 30 million um unless they go it's a marvel movie so you know the model has been that actors will take whatever that is up front exchange for box office well with what's going on with netflix right now and apple all that's changed which is you're guaranteed a you know, a, a good salary up front or a good budget pr- up front to go make the movie that you want to make. If it comes out as you hope it's going to, they've proven that they're going to put, I mean, their Oscar campaign that they did for Icarus last year rivaled Shape of Water. I mean, it was, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, we were back page of the New York Times. We were front page of the Hollywood Reporter. They had billboards all over Los Angeles. And you go, well, how many companies could do that for a documentary or look what they did with Roma this year. So it's extraordinary. And I think that it's also awesome because they're giving a voice to so many people. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's a little overwhelming, but it's amazing the amount of content on there. So I think that the whole model has changed. It's going to continue to change. You're going to see less and less films going into the theaters. I mean, the new Scorsese film is Netflix. I mean, that his his new film is Netflix. Sandra Bullock's last film was Netflix. The new Ben Affleck film is Netflix. I mean, and on and the list goes on and on and on and on. And and you're seeing that across the board now. So you're seeing that there's almost no filmmaker who's not willing to go and do something uh, with Netflix or Amazon or Hulu. And I'm sure what will be coming from Disney and Warner Brothers. And you're looking at a business model that is that is radically changed. But at the same time, it's creating all sorts of opportunity because the amount of content that's being created is extraordinary. And they're able to tap into every single level of viewership based on demographics, where somebody lives. So I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's actually a very good time uh, to be in the creation and entertainment business. I better hurry up and get my documentary pitch. 
<laughs> Better get that going. Uh, Brian, you are one of the busiest men ever, and I cannot thank you enough for giving me an, an hour of your time, mate. You are such a gentleman for doing this. I really appreciate it, man. Oh, man, my pleasure. Good catching up, even though we're in an interview. Uh, no, I, look, I really appreciate it, Brian. I'm just so grateful for it, man. I'm just, I, I really, really am. I, I want to ask you so much about your next project, but I know because of the nature of it, you, if it's anything like Icarus, you can't tell me anything, can you? Exactly. I can't okay. tell you anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, then if it's anything like Icarus, stay safe. Just now I'm going to go make some more global enemies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stay safe, man. Stay safe. Love to you and Mary, man. Thanks, brother. That was Brian Fogel. He is on Instagram. He is on Twitter. You can find him, B-R-Y-A-N-F-O-G-E-L. Let him know you heard him here on the show. Do watch his film, Icarus. It's on Netflix right now. And his next one, um, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible. Thank you, everybody, that made this show happen today. There's a team that works on this show. Andy Ma, my audio producer. Thank you so much, Andy. Rachel Barrett, my show producer, for helping me and Brian manage to link up at the same place at the same time on two different continents and two different time zones. Rachel, you're amazing and happy birthday because um, it's your birthday tomorrow and I don't know what my life would be without you because you're awesome. And Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider, who made all the music. You're the best. And I've got to thank Audrey my wife because you're excellent hun <laughs> um, have a great week whatever it is that you do uh, I'll talk to you on Friday until we speak next time sleep well and dream of beautiful things ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.